cannot believe it, but it is already May, and that means it is time for our next Global in the Granite State discussion. Thank you to all of our new and returning listeners for joining us for this important conversation around where Israel finds itself as it turns 75 years old as a modern state. As always, this is a production of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire, and I am Tim Horgan, your host and the executive director of the council. I know you are already aware, based solely on the fact that you are listening to this podcast, but we know that global events continue to shape the future in ways that impact us all. The ripple effects of incidents abroad travel the world, changing perceptions, potential next steps, and the realities for billions of people every day. With that understanding, it becomes easier to see how your own decisions can help shape the world in new and different ways. Whether it is simply listening to this podcast and becoming a more informed global citizen, or taking it to the next step and leading community conversations around critical issues. Without a doubt, we all can create a better world through collective understanding, individual action, and global perspective. Thank you to all of our members, donors, sponsors, and supporters for providing the resources necessary for these critical conversations to continue. A special thank you to McLean Middleton, our series sponsor, for your generous support of our efforts. You are a true global leader, and we appreciate your commitment to international understanding. McLean Middleton is one of New England's premier full-service law firms with over 100 attorneys throughout offices in New Hampshire and Massachusetts. McLean Middleton's attorneys have been providing trusted legal services to businesses throughout the region for over 100 years. Learn more at McLean.com. Join us now as we discuss Israel at 75. and North Africa has not always been an easy place to live and create a stable environment that leads to prosperity for the millions of people who live in this region. From historical conflicts and large empires, think the Ottoman Empire reaching its peak in the early 16th century, to a wide variety of smaller regional disputes and hegemons, this area of the world has been the focus of religious, political, economic, and social turmoil for millennia. There is a long history to this region, and some of the most important religious sites in the world are found here, namely for Jews, Christians, and Muslims. This comes from the important fact that these three major religions are all founded under the same god, more or less, and that so many of the same buildings, sites, and histories are intertwined as to have become inseparable. This is no truer than within the modern-day borders of Israel and Palestine, one of the biggest flashpoints in the world. It began millennia ago. Jews have been living in that land for thousands of years. That is Jacek Isaacson, the American Jewish Committee's Chief Policy and Political Affairs Officer, a longtime policy strategist and advocate for Arab-Israeli peace. Having worked in this role for over 30 years, Jason has a strong background and understanding of the historical and modern-day issues that have continued to plague the nation of Israel. Before it was the birthplace of Jesus, it was the birthplace of Judaism, as you know, for thousands of years. 
and Jews have been present in that land consistently throughout this period. Now, there have been other people who have occupied the land as well. Arab populations have drifted in and out of that property. Jews have drifted in and out of that property. Different powers have controlled the land, the Ottoman Empire, the British, of course. But it has been for millennia the homeland of the Jewish people. So the establishment of the modern state of Israel is the outgrowth of a very long history and the appropriate place to have a refuge for the Jewish people after the horrors of the Holocaust. But it wasn't just because of the Holocaust. It was because this is where Jews had always lived. It is where the city of David was established. It is where the temples stood before they were destroyed by invaders. So the natural outgrowth of this history is a modern state that was created by the United Nations that came into being in 1948 when the British mandate expired. Of course, things have never been easy for the people of the Jewish faith, as we are exploring in our current T. William and Patricia Ayers Global Tipping Point series. But there was real hope in 1947 that the establishment of a homeland for the Jewish people might bring a change after the horrors of the Holocaust, where 6 million Jews were exterminated by the Nazis, along with another 5 million quote-unquote others, Romanis, Jehovah's Witnesses, homosexuals, people living with disabilities, and any other people they deemed subhuman. As it has been clear from the beginning, however, it remains a difficult world for the people of Israel to survive in. In 1948, the British left this region, upon which time Arab armies massed against the small Jewish state and tried to destroy it and drive the Jews into the sea and were pushed back. And it was a remarkable military feat accomplished by people who had a variety and mostly very little military training and experience and weapons, but with incredible determination and outside assistance, including from American volunteers and the government of Czechoslovakia at the time and others were able to prevail and carve out a small state, roughly on the outlines of what the UN had mandated. Had the Arabs not attacked this modern state of Israel, this small modern state of Israel, which, by the way, did not include as part of that state the city of Jerusalem. It would have been an international zone, basically, governed by some kind of United Nations council. There wouldn't have been the problems that continue to plague the people of Israel and the Palestinian people to this day. If they had accepted a, an Arab state alongside a Jewish state, we would today have a state of Israel and a state of Palestine. That did not happen. I want to jump in here, as I had never heard of the idea that Jerusalem was proposed as an international city under the oversight of the United Nations. There were many international actors that believed this was the right path forward, mainly the Vatican, who also lays claims to religious sites in the area, with the idea being to ensure open access by all. However, in the end, this administration was never set up and the Arab-Israeli War of 1948 ended with Israel in control of West Jerusalem and Jordan in control of the East. And then in 1967, when Egypt and other states in the region again tried to extinguish, choke off Israel and drive it into the sea as well, uh, Israel again beat back these Arab armies. Actually, in fact, 
capturing the city of Jerusalem, the ancient city of Jerusalem, the old city, and the West Bank as well, which had been occupied by Jordan, as well as Gaza, which was on the coast as well. So you've had this series of efforts by Israel's neighbors to destroy Israel. Israel has prevailed. Throughout those wars, Israel has grown into a modern state and an important international actor. Although global tension remains over the unresolved state of the Israel-Palestine conflict and the conditions in Gaza and the West Bank. Through it all, Israel remains the only democracy, although flawed, in the Middle East. But democratic Israel has survived and prevailed, but with ongoing challenges, with a militia on its north in southern Lebanon that controls, frankly, the government of Lebanon and that has a hundred thousand plus missiles and rockets aimed at Israel that were supplied, for the most part, funded by Iran. You have uh, Syria that has been implacably hostile. You have Jordan, uh, with which Israel has had a peace treaty since 1994, a very successful peace treaty. Not a tremendous amount of trade, but very important strategic intelligence cooperation, and also water and energy cooperation to a very significant degree, which is of enormous benefit to the people of Jordan. You have, of course, on Israel's you know, western border, the Republic of Egypt, which has been a partner of Israel since 1979, at peace with Israel since 1979, in which there's also a great deal of energy cooperation and also strategic cooperation. So Israel is at peace with two of its neighbors, has a difficult situation on its northern and northeastern borders and faces an existential threat, and it has for decades from the Islamic Republic of Iran, which is not an immediate neighbor, but is within ballistic missile distance, and they are developing their missile capabilities and, as you know, their nuclear capabilities, and repeatedly, sometimes daily, threaten the very existence of Israel. There is hope on the horizon. As several of the region's Arab countries have recently recognized the state of Israel through what came to be known as the Abraham Accords. What we saw in the years leading up to 2020, and I would say not just under the U.S. administration of President Trump, but years before that as well, increasing recognition by many of Israel's uh, Arab neighbors, not its immediate neighbors, Egypt and Jordan, with which it already had relations, but other countries as well, in the Levant, in the Gulf, in North Africa, that there would be an advantage to having a relationship with Israel. What held them back was an Arab League rule, essentially, a diktat by the Arab League that had been agreed to over the years to continue to oppose Israel, to isolate Israel on behalf of the Palestinian cause, thinking that they were helping the Palestinian cause by isolating Israel and pretending that Israel didn't exist, having nothing to do with Israel, boycotting Israel. The idea of land for peace, or the creation of a Palestinian state in exchange for recognition of Israel and cessation of hostilities, has been a long-standing goal of the Palestinian leadership and their regional supporters. However, there is differing opinions on how this might work in practice. Namely, what comes first, the land or the peace? As time went on, attitudes have shifted. What became clear to far-sighted Arab leaders, and this is something that in travels that I conducted beginning in early to mid-1990s, really year after year, going to Arab capitals, talking to people about the possibilities that could exist if they had relations with Israel. It was very clear that many Arab leaders were really fed up with the status quo supported the notion of justice and rights for the Palestinian people, but were fed up with Palestinian leadership. 
which had again and again failed to reach compromises that would have benefited their people, failed to embrace an outstretched hand of peace, even if not everything that they asked for, a lot of what they asked for could have been delivered in a succession of offers that were made in the 90s. What was the sense that I often got in meetings with Arab foreign ministers and heads of state and other ministers and civil society partners and business people across the region was, we are not making the progress that we could be making if we had a relationship with Israel. And for what are we compromising? Are we sacrificing? We are not helping the Palestinian people by sticking with a leadership that we know is corrupt, that we know has walked away from potential compromises that would have guaranteed them a state. And when we also know they're pocketing millions or billions of dollars, often of our own money, the Arab leaders would say to me, and why are we doing this? And then it became clear that this dam was going to break at some point. And it did break. It broke in the period of 2018, 19, and then 20, when there were repeated signs, and we certainly saw it in the Peace to Prosperity Conference that uh, President Trump's team created in Bahrain in 2019, where you had Arab business people coming and, and speaking with Israeli business people and uh, hospital administrators and builders of various kinds who recognized that they could be doing things together. And they could actually help the Palestinians by engaging Israel, not by isolating Israel. So we have three countries, Morocco, the United Arab Emirates, and Bahrain, having officially normalized relations with Israel. Sudan has been on the path to normalization before the coup and recent spat of violence. So that would be four countries in the space of just a few years that would widen the circle of Arab-Israeli peace. And of course, I've had contact, but much more importantly, Israeli officials, but also a great many business people and other civil society actors have crisscrossed the Arab world for many years and are known quantities and are contributing to development across the region, to agricultural technology, irrigation processes that are put in place in, in many uh, Arab lands, even those where there is not a a diplomatic relationship with Israel. And it is just a matter of time, frankly, before this uh, circle of peace uh, widens further and, and, and really you have the end of the Israeli-Arab conflict. What we are hoping for, yearning for, seeking is a resumption of a political process with the Palestinians. When you have a Palestinian leadership that is ready to accept the reality of Israel and to sell the reality of Israel and the necessity of compromise with Israel to its people, you can have a Palestinian state created alongside the state of Israel, and that will conclude this terrible chapter. However, we clearly have not seen this come to fruition yet, as demonstrated by the recent cycle of violence that has occurred over the past couple of weeks. While who started it has been under dispute and lines up with whichever side of the conflict you identify with, what we know is that there was a raid by Israeli police on the Al-Asqa Mosque, also known as the Temple Mount, with both sides claiming the other planned and started the violence. In the aftermath, rocket attacks and counterstrikes were exchanged, seemingly with no casualties on either side. However, this is part of a wider trend which has led to instability in the Israeli government over the past four or so years. Since 2019, there have been five different coalition governments, each of the previous one having fallen apart, which has culminated with the return of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, along with the most conservative coalition government Israel has seen. 
2019 was also the year in which Netanyahu was indicted on bribery, breach of trust, and fraud, kicking off the turmoil that has rocked the Kisnet and has yet been resolved in the courts. It rattled the political scene in many ways, and then you had further instability thrown into the mix because while in the history of Israel you haven't had one party that wins a majority in the Knesset and therefore governs the country, it's always a coalition government, you had nominal sort of political allies of Prime Minister Netanyahu who would not sit with him in a government because of these charges against him, because of his legal status, even though it's legal in Israel under indictment to serve in office, there were questions that were raised, obviously, by some of his nominal sort of political allies. And that created further instability and further difficulty in actually forging a coalition. So you had this series of elections, government would serve for a year or so, and then would be disbanded, alliances would be made and then broken, people did or did not want to sit with Netanyahu. And then, of course, as I, as I mentioned earlier, you had over the last year and a half or so, this spike in violence, which united forces on the right who were more fearful, more concerned about security, and gave ground for Netanyahu and a right-wing coalition to come together to support him. So that brings us up, frankly, to the present day, where you have still great divisions in the country, as you have seen. Hundreds of thousands of uh, Israelis have been in the streets repeatedly to protest a proposal by the Netanyahu government to overhaul the way that the judiciary interacts with the legislative branch of the Israeli government, the Knesset. This judicial overhaul has sparked massive protest in the country, leading to a pause in the advancement of the legislation, a great sign for the health of Israeli democracy. What the proponents of these changes argue is that with a Supreme Court which can overturn laws by the parliament, there is an imbalance of power which should be rectified. They want a simple majority of the Knesset to be able to overturn Supreme Court rulings. In addition, they would like to change the committee that appoints judges throughout the Israeli system, adding two more members, providing seven of the 11 seats to the executive and legislative branch officials, allowing ruling coalitions to dominate. The current government sees the Supreme Court as too left-leaning due to the current system, which they say requires conservative governments to compromise more than liberal governments. There are interesting arguments to be made on both sides, but the most important thing to factor in here is that these protests make the will of the people abundantly clear. The democratic spirit of Israel is alive and well. You see hundreds of thousands of people without violence, without arrests, although, I mean, sometimes if you know they break a window, there have been some arrests, but frankly, nothing, no real violence that has taken place. It's really been a peaceful, in fact, patriotic display of support for Israeli democracy. And in the midst of all of that, because of this overwhelming popular wave of opposition to the proposals by the government to the judicial overhaul plans, you had president of Israel, there's a, a head of state in the Israeli system, there's a president who was the head of state and a prime minister who's the head of government. But the head of state is more than ceremonial, but has enormous influence. And the president called for calm and called for a rethinking of this approach that the government was taking, put out some proposals for how to resolve this crisis and, and come to some kind of a compromise between the government's plans and the opposition's concerns about changes in the Israeli democratic system. 
And then finally, at the end of March, after many protests and after, frankly, the um, ill-advised firing that the prime minister did of the Israeli defense minister, who was really an ally of his, but who had called for a pause in this judicial reform process, there was a huge uproar created by that firing. And then the prime minister backed down and called for the same pause that the defense minister had called for, reinstituted the defense minister. And now you have a process that's going on under the uh, leadership of the president of Israel, President Herzog, of uh, the parties sitting down together and trying to come up with a compromise proposal on the judicial uh, reform. With such popular backlash against a law proposed by the ruling coalition, one is left to wonder if this coalition can hold or will it lose its mandate, fall apart, and lead the country to its sixth election since 2019? It's a really good question, and I don't know for sure, but I would say this. The ultra-right members of this governing coalition, who are really extreme in their views about a range of things, uh, about the nature of society, uh, secular versus religious, about the role of the Arab minority in Israel, about women's rights, about LGBTQ rights, about the possibility of a relationship with the Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza, a whole range of issues on which they're really at the far edge of the political spectrum in Israel. They're upholding this coalition. They keep this coalition where it is, but a lot of what they want, the prime minister recognizes would be unacceptable to not only the international community, which has been made abundantly clear from time to time, but to the people of Israel, as we see in the hundreds of thousands of people who have been in the streets and the overwhelming percentages in polls that have been taken. And frankly, the polls that have been taken, public opinion polls about his popularity and the popularity of his coalition. So there are extreme elements that are part of the coalition, but are frustrated by the fact that the coalition isn't doing what these extremists wanted to do. One could say that at some point that breaks, they just quit and leave and the coalition falls apart. On the other hand, they also recognize that if they leave, they will never be in another coalition. They will never have power if they walk out of this coalition because the public doesn't want that. They won't support it in the next election. So I really am expecting that the coalition will remain in power, it will survive, and will somehow manage to either soften, modify, throw certain advantages to, but not anywhere close to what the extremists want. But I, yeah, I think it's that's likelier than a collapse of the of the coalition, just simply because they're staying together because if they leave, they will have nowhere to go. At the same time, it is clear that the Israeli public is more moderate and expects a government to remain moderate. And if there are even these few advantages given to the extremists in the government, they will rise up and you will have demonstrations in the streets and Perhaps what we saw before the pause in the judicial reform process, major strikes, the airport was shut down, schools were closed, labor unions, including government employee unions, the embassies around the world were closed because of these strikes. The Israeli public, its democratic spirit is alive and well in Israel, and it will not tolerate that kind of extremism. So I'm expecting that we'll be in for a very interesting ride, but I do expect that the likelihood is that this government will remain 
but will moderate more than I think people were, uh, were expecting. With terms set at four years, the next election is scheduled for November of 2026, barring the dissolution of the current government. With a coalition of 64 members out of the 61 that are necessary, the razor-thin majorities of the past four years remain. Israel is a country that is both unified and divided. It is a melting pot, although maybe in some ways it hasn't sufficiently melted, of many different peoples. Jews from from the Middle East, Mizrahi Jews, they're called, uh, who come from uh, Arab lands, who were refugees from Iraq or from Iran, which is not Arab, but Middle East, or North Africa, or Syria, or Lebanon, or Egypt. Hundreds of thousands, really, they're, uh, millions now, they're descendants, of course, who come from countries that have no tradition of democracy. You have also a huge proportion of Israelis who come from the former Soviet Union, who come from Eastern Europe, also countries with a weak or non-existent history of democratic tradition. And Ashkenazi Jews from not just from Eastern Europe, but from Western Europe as well, and from North America and elsewhere, who come from countries with democratic traditions some of whom are secular. The majority of Israelis are secular in their general outlook, uh, believe in a division of church and state. They wouldn't call it church, but also a significant number who are very religious and live their lives dictated entirely by their their religious uh, customs and, and traditions, which are not especially democratic. It is certainly understandable that with all the challenges that this country faces, both internally and externally, that it would be difficult to maintain a ruling coalition in a parliamentary system where a party only needs 3.25% of the total vote to gain a seat, making it nearly impossible for any one party to gain an absolute majority. For our American friends listening, can you imagine trying to gain a consensus in our political system if you had to broker deals between 12 to 14 parties, all with their own aims, goals, and personalities? We have enough trouble building consensus with just two. However, it is important that the people of Israel, its government, partners, and adversaries continue to work together where there is common ground and try to minimize the negative impact of the ongoing issues that have arisen over the partition of Palestine, the creation of modern Israel, and the inability of all sides to craft a resolution. However, it is important to remember in so many ways, both within Israel and where hundreds of thousands of Israelis live in the West Bank, but also on Israel's borders, and also where Israelis vacation in Bulgaria, where they were subject to a terrorist attack, or in Cyprus, where they were subject to a very real threat of a terrorist attack, or other countries around the world, where, whether in Buenos Aires in 1992 or other places around the world, where Israelis have been killed because they're Israelis to know that the country is under threat. So one wants to temper one's judgments accordingly. But that's not to say that one needs to be silent when one sees injustices. Israel is not a perfect place. It makes mistakes. Typically, it owns up to those mistakes in ways that other countries don't always. But again, it's a country that exists in the real world, and it, in fighting battles, sometimes commits errors as does the United States, as do other countries as well. So I want to be proportionate in how I criticize Israel, and I would suggest that others do as well, and not have in the United Nations Human Rights Commission one entire agenda item devoted just to Israel. 
and then another agenda item devoted to the entire rest of the world. That's just something that's perverse and disproportionate. And it's not unique in the way the international community looks at Israel. It holds it up to a standard that other countries are not held to. So I believe it's entirely fair to criticize Israeli actions, but one must do so proportionately. One must recognize that it's a country that is subject to unusual stresses and threats, and while not perfect, has democratic processes, including, by the way, and believe me, Israel is committed to maintaining this, an independent judiciary that is so independent that has put former prime ministers and presidents in jail and is capable of policing itself when it commits errors. So criticism is valid, but one must have a sense of proportion and fairness. This is true for the Palestinians as well. We are living in a world where many people believe it is either one thing or another. In order to have a real conversation and to move issues forward, we need to have a clear and factual understanding of the issues, the challenges, and the opportunities. Both the Israelis and the Palestinians have just claims to the land. Both have made poor decisions throughout the 75-year period, and both are living with the consequences. It is our job to understand, discuss, and provide objective insights, which can help create space for peace. We can also work to provide opportunities for everyday Israelis and Palestinians to come together and work towards peace and understanding, as the Council has done through the International Visitor Leadership Exchange Program, hosting Israelis and Palestinians together here in New Hampshire. By supporting the work of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire, by engaging in these conversations, and by having your own community discussions, we are able to make small changes that add up to big breakthroughs. I will leave you with these parting words from Jason. I'm excited about the fact that Israel is turning 75. I think that it has weathered a great deal in its young life as a modern state, although not at all a young life in terms of its historic nature and character. And I'm proud of Israel. I'm not an Israeli. I'm an American Jew, and I'm a proud American. But I recognize in Israel a resilience and a spirit and a courage and a compassion, an ability to send its people around the world to help in times of natural disasters, to cooperate with the United States in every possible way, not only in security, but also in public health and in a whole range of other sectors, and also cooperate with its neighbors. And I've seen up close in my work for the American Jewish Committee, the kind of cooperation that exists now between Israel and Arab states in management of water resources, in energy creation, the work that it's doing with India and with the United Arab Emirates in this new I2U2 configuration, the work that it's doing with Jordan to provide water in return for solar power that is going to be created in uh, in northern uh, Jordan, the work that it does with Egypt on security, but also on energy, the Eastern Mediterranean gas forum that unites Israel and Jordan and Egypt and the Palestinians and Greece and Cyprus in developing Eastern Mediterranean energy resources. That kind of cooperation, that kind of spirit, that kind of desire to work with all of its neighbors is admirable and laudable and very much in the spirit of the value system that underlies both the United States and Israel. So I am excited about celebrating Israel's 75th anniversary and look forward to uh, a great many years to come.
listening to this conversation, and I hope you found it useful to your understanding of Israel today. There is obviously a lot more to talk about than can be covered in a 30-minute conversation, but as always, we look at these as the start, not the end. We hope you will continue to read, talk, and engage with the critical issues facing Israel today as a strong, functioning, inclusive, and secure Israel can create space and a path to the two-state solution. If achieved, this can lead to a more stable and secure region, which can begin the long work of creating economic growth and prosperity for all. If this issue remains unresolved, the cycle of violence will continue. Regional rivalries will grow. Death and destruction will continue to plague the people, cutting too many lives short and driving more and more people from their homes into dangerous situations and creating further refugee crises. Please take the information you heard today, process it, and draw your own conclusions on the path forward. You've taken the first step on your journey of understanding by listening today. This is The Global in the Granite State, a production of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. You guessed it. Tim Horgan is the host, producer, director, audio technician, editor, marketer, and everything else that needs to be done to make this podcast possible. Our theme music is Admin by A.A. Alto, and our interlude music is The Inner Conflict by The New Geometry. Until next month.